The La Crosse Public Library Archives presents Dark Lacrosse Stories, a series in collaboration with the La Crosse Tribune, featuring the seedier side of La Crosse, Wisconsin's history. These true stories are reflections of their time and place in history. The intent is not to diminish the human suffering that may have resulted from these events, but to bring light to ways in which people in the past experienced life. The city of La Crosse and the locations where these stories took place occupy part of a vast network of the ancestral lands of the Ho-Chunk, and we thank our Ho-Chunk community members and their ancestors for their stewardship of this area's land and history. The July 11, 1935 edition of the Hoka Chief landed on doorsteps and newsstands with a bold headline, A Double Life Calls for a $2,700 Salary. The editorial from H.E. Wheaton opened with the question, Why does our $2,700 city attorney have to go to South 10th Street to consult with the Lacrosse Theaters Company? The people are asking, Why does our $2,700 city attorney call up to make his date before he goes to South 10th Street? and then a little later call again to ask if the coast is clear, and then park his car across the street while he peg-legs on tiptoe upstairs so quietly that only the little birds can hear him. Inasmuch as our $2,700 city attorney and this representative of the Lacrosse Theaters Company are in the same building all day, the people are asking, why can't they get their business done during office hours instead of pursuing their meetings in the evening? In view of the fact that our $2,700 city attorney is drawing down such a big salary, the people are asking if it is because he leads a double life. It was this newspaper that was found in the home of Oscar J. Swenis, the city attorney in question, on the afternoon of August 15, 1935, when his almost lifeless body was carried out of his home at the corner of Main Street and 17th Place and across the street to Grandview Hospital. And could it be this paper was the root cause of the deaths of three people by the end of autumn that year? The evening prior, Swenis, La Crosse's city attorney since 1919, met with the city street superintendent and a few officials from the U.S. Navigation Service in town on business. He left his law firm office in the Rivoli building and walked a short distance past the tree-lined courthouse block to the Hotel La Crosse, his distinctive gait the result of a boyhood train accident in which he lost his leg. Freight hopping was a common but dangerous pastime amongst youngsters then, and Oscar was lucky to have only lost his leg. It was about this time of day that Irene Swenis, Oscar's wife of 13 years, returned to town after what must have been a weeks-long motoring trip that included stops in the Black Hills of South Dakota, Yellowstone National Park, and Estes Park in Colorado. Their home on 17th Place was empty and quiet. Oscar was nowhere to be found. My husband, Russell, and I live right behind Mr. and Mrs. Swinnis. After dinner, we were getting ready to take a nice drive in our automobile to cool off, saw that Mrs. Swinnis was home, and invited her along. I wanted to hear all about her trip. We drove around for quite a while and arrived home at about 11 o'clock that night. She seemed upset, so I asked her to join me in the morning to play golf. I should have paid more attention. She told me she had a hairdressing engagement, if she was still here. Oscar's meeting at the Hotel Lacrosse seemed to have run late, considerably late. Carl Wallstrom, the city street superintendent, reportedly drove him to his home at approximately 2.30 in the morning, leaving Oscar's car downtown. As the sun rose that morning, everything seemed normal. 
It was so hot, so our windows were open, but I never heard a thing. It was a normal morning. I did hear their upstairs window close at about 7.30, but that was Mr. Swenis's habit when he left for the office. I told Russell that I wanted to see if Mr. Swenis got on the bus which passes our house. The bus was pulling away from the corner when I looked out, and no sign of Mr. Swenis. Oscar was missed at a special committee meeting that morning in the mayor's office. The committee held off the meeting for 40 minutes waiting for his arrival before continuing without him. Given the proximity of their houses, Swenis's neighbors were acutely aware of the Swenis's habits and were the first to notice that something wasn't right. I must have called the house at least a dozen times, but never got an answer. Then at about 10.30, I started smelling gas and thought that something was wrong with my oven, but it was fine. Russell came home for lunch about then, and I let him know how I couldn't get a hold of Mrs. Swenis. We walked over to the house and saw that her car was still in the garage. And then it hit us. The odor of natural gas was so strong, I couldn't bear it. We tried to get a hold of somebody. Irene's sister, May, anybody. Russell called the police. They had to cut through a window screen to get in. The officers found them. Irene was in the kitchen on the floor. She'd closed up the house and turned on the gas in the oven. Officer Sanford and I found Mr. Swenis upstairs in his bed with a bullet wound to his head, but still breathing. It seems Mrs. Swenis was on the other end of a 22 caliber repeating rifle, and then she asphyxiated herself using the oven's gas jets. It probably went down first thing in the morning. He was undressed, only had his underwear on, and the missus was still in her pajamas. We had him taken across the street to Grandview Hospital. The bullet had fractured Oscar's skull and entered his brain. Doctors at Grandview Hospital had done their best for Oscar, but his prognosis only worsened as the hours passed. He never regained consciousness. At 5 o'clock the following morning, Oscar passed away. What could have been the reason Mrs. Swenis had for ending her own life and that of her husband's? Were Oscar's late nights a result of overwork? He was also serving as Onalaska's city attorney while managing his own law firm. Or was Oscar leading a double life? The Hoka chief issue from just a month earlier probably caused some upheaval in the Swenis home, perhaps even spurring Irene's trip west. Something had certainly been on her mind then. On July 10th, just one day before that issue of the Hoka chief went out, Irene wrote a letter she intended as a last will. It read, To whom it may concern, I hereby give and bequeath to my sister May everything that belongs to me or that I may hereafter inherit. Irene E. Swenis. On the back of the sealed envelope was added, I wish to be buried next to my husband. Irene seemed to have alluded to her unhappiness to her neighbor the day before. She told me she had a hairdressing engagement, if she was still here. Although there were no children, wasn't it odd that Irene would bequeath everything to her sister and not her husband? Did she know she and her husband would die at the same time? There were many unanswered questions, and it appeared that there may have been motive and premeditation on Irene's part, but the police and the coroner chalked up the tragedy to domestic difficulties and did not see reason to conduct any further investigation, noting that the facts in the case were too clear. No further investigation meant no need to hold any other individual accountable. That may have satisfied city officials, but readers of the Hoka Chief have been given reason to believe otherwise. It's barely blind gossip if you ask me. 
that editor was off his rocker. He was always complaining about Mr. Swenis. Never used his name if he didn't have a polite thing to say. Would just call him the $2,700 city attorney. And all that business with the Lacrosse Theaters Company. They sued him for libel because he was printing any old thing that came in his head about their ticket prices. It's no surprise that he decided to print that gossip about Mr. Swenis and poor Miss Bradfield. Didn't use her name either, of course. But people can put two and two together. When the Hoka chief editor printed the item on July 11th that year, speculating about a possible double life for Oscar Swenis, did he realize there may be consequences to his actions? The tragedy in August with the deaths of Oscar and Irene Swenis only deepened in October, when the alarming scent of gas again made itself known in the 100 block of South 10th Street. We responded to a call from a neighbor about the smell of gas coming from the second floor apartment. We had to force our way through because the door had been taped from the inside. No doubt about her intentions. We found the deceased face down on the kitchen floor in front of her stove. She was identified as 44-year-old Ruth Bradfield, the old fire chief's daughter. The neighbors said she was a secretary for the Lacrosse Theater Company. Suffocation via natural gas was an easily accessible and therefore common way of taking one's life during this period of time. However, in light of what had happened in August, it was uncanny that Ruth chose this way. Her death would forever secure her role in the minds of area gossips as the other woman. Ruth had left two sealed letters for her closest friends. Though the contents of the letters would never be publicly revealed, several area newspapers reported that Ruth had been distraught over the deaths of Oscar and Irene Swenis. Whether her distress was due to grief over the tragedy or her unsavory link to Lacrosse's $2,700 city attorney, we will never know. The Hoka Chief, a paper which boasted of its truthfulness and accuracy, was notably silent on this story. And now I'd like to welcome in Sarah Luddington, Associate Librarian at the Lacrosse Public Library Archives, who did some of the initial research for this story. 1935 was not Herbert Wheaton's year. As the sole owner and editor of the Hoka Chief for nearly 25 years at that point, his chickens were beginning to come home to roost. A former school teacher and principal, H.E. Wheaton, had purchased the Hoka Chief in 1912. It had a reputation of being among the oldest weekly newspapers in Minnesota, its pedigree going back to 1857. This was a point of pride for Mr. Wheaton, and for a time he maintained the scope and format of coverage that readers were used to. By 1935, however, the tone of the paper had taken a turn toward the more sensational. The chief had become something that would be recognizable to even a modern audience, a tabloid. The coverage of the paper did include Hoka News, but since La Crosse was the closest big city, the chief tended to focus on events and politics there. A regular column called The People Are Asking allowed Wheaton to vent under the guise of speaking the thoughts of the public at large. While H.E. Wheaton's name usually only appeared as editor-in-chief, many of the articles in it used pseudonyms for bylines. Gumshoe, You Know Me, Pennywise, B.O. Powder, Henpeck, and many others were prolific authors in the pages of the Hoka Chief. It would come to light that some of these belonged to friends and associates of Mr. Wheaton's, but at least one, Henpeck, can be tied to him directly. He would later publish a book of poetry under the name Henry Peck. 
1934 and 1935, before the tragic events you just heard about, Wheaton had published several eyebrow-raising editorials. One accused the La Crosse Police Department and its sheriff, Albert Riley, of graft. After reading this piece, an angry Sheriff Riley headed straight to the post office at a time that Wheaton was known to be there and assaulted him. Though Wheaton retracted the article, the state would bring a criminal libel case against him in the matter. A series of articles targeting the La Crosse Theater Company were published in early 1935. In them, accusations were made that the company was monopolizing the theater business in La Crosse. When the La Crosse Theater Company brought a criminal libel case against Herbert Wheaton, it had to list six additional defendants, all of them the pseudonyms that had been used for each article. After preliminary testimony was given in August, the same month as the deaths of Oscar and Irene Swinnis, all of these libel cases came up on the docket for the county circuit court in October. In the matter of the state versus Herbert E. Wheaton, the defendant ultimately pled guilty, and the judge fined him $50 plus court costs, the equivalent of over $1,100 today. Judge Cowie also had this to say regarding the matter, and it's hard not to apply this admonishment to all of what had transpired that year. In my notion, you have been engaged, Mr. Wheaton, in a racket, a newspaper racket. You have been selling your newspaper at the expense of the reputation of citizens generally in this city. I think it is a despicable way of earning a living, prying upon the private, personal, and social affairs of the citizens of this community by inflammatory and exaggerated newspaper articles for the sole and only purpose of selling your newspaper and selling advertising space. A man that takes anonymous letters and uses them as a basis of a flaming newspaper headline, regardless of the truth and regardless of the consequences, is entitled to more punishment than I'm going to give you. It wasn't too long after this that Wheaton, who all this time had maintained a lacrosse address, finally retreated to live in Hoka full-time. He continued to run the paper until 1952. Wheaton lived just long enough to see it merge with the Lacrescent Times before passing away in 1954. Thanks for listening. Grocery store. 